0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. This is Samantha Williams, one of your hosts, and today I'm speaking with Lisa King, the author of Legible Sovereignties, Rhetoric, Representations, and Native American Museums, published by the Oregon State University Press. This book is an interdisciplinary examination of Indigenous representation at three different institutions. the Zebewing Center in Michigan, which is owned and operated by the Saginaw Chippewa Tribe the Haskell Indian Nation University's Cultural Center and Museum, and the National Museum of the American Indian, which is part of the Smithsonian structure. Dr. King is an assistant professor in the Department of English at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, where she teaches subjects related to cultural rhetorics and rhetorics of cross-cultural sites, including indigenous museums and cultural centers. Lisa, welcome, and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so before we get into the book, can you tell our listeners a bit more about your research interests and your background?
1: Sure. Um, So I did both my MA and my PhD at the University of Kansas. So in that respect, if you know about Lawrence, you know the Haskell connection is kind of right there. Um, So my work is interdisciplinary um, between rhetoric and writing studies and Native American and Indigenous studies. Um, I work more specifically with cultural rhetorics with an emphasis in contemporary Native American and Indigenous rhetorics visual rhetorics and material rhetorics, so that's where we get into museums. Um, I'm particularly interested in the rhetorics of cross-cultural sites, such as indigenous museums and cultural centers, and then theorizing cross-cultural pedagogy um, through the teaching of indigenous texts in rhetoric and composition classrooms.
0: Excellent. Excellent. So before we discuss the specific case studies that you describe in legible sovereignties, I thought it would be helpful to listeners for you to explain some of the concepts that you use in your analysis. So could you begin by explaining the term legible sovereignties as it relates to museums and indigenous peoples? Yes,
1: so legible sovereignties is the name for the communicative framework for action within a purposeful cross-cultural space like a museum or a cultural center. Um, it foregrounds the right to rhetorical sovereignty that every indigenous community has, but that also calls attention to the strategic ways that sovereign statements can be expressed in order to make it across cultural boundaries and make an impact. Um, so the, the term is something that I developed to try to describe that. Um, and it, it always wants to take into account or, or, or prioritize Um, Indigenous self-determination and communication first and foremost. Um, It wants to understand and examine the communicative intent of a given act or display in support of those represented Indigenous communities. Um, But it also wants to observe how communicative acts function in reality. That is, we have to assume that exhibits or any meeting-making process really will generate multiple meetings for different audiences depending on who they are and where they come from. And we have to take those multiple meetings into consideration. And that means then, in turn, that if we want to do better, we want to analyze the tensions between the communicative intent, the multiple meanings generated, and what happens there, and then provide some kind of constructive rhetorical critique towards eliminating those disconnects and strengthening those communicative alliances.
0: Okay. Okay. And so how does this term then connect with another concept that you describe in the book, which is rhetorical sovereignty?
1: So rhetorical sovereignty is um, in part the foundation for legible sovereignties. Um, In the sense that Scott Richard Lyon's work has been really influential in uh, indigenous rhetorics in in that part of the field, um, where he takes the concept of sovereignty into the realm of language and rhetorical practice. And uh, the term he first coined in an article called Rhetorical Sovereignty, What Do American Indians Want From Writing?, um, and what he means by that, and, and so I'm quoting him here, is it's the inherent right of indigenous peoples to determine their own communicative needs and desires and this pursuit to decide for themselves the goals, modes, styles, and languages of public discourse. So when we talk about sovereignty, a lot of times we think about um, land sovereignty, or we think about you know rights to education, or we think about you know, water rights. Uh, you know, is life, right? Um, these are the kinds of sovereignties that we often think about or that make headlines. But what Lyons was trying to do was draw attention to the ways, even when it comes down to the way that indigenous communities communicate, that there is a kind of sovereignty there too. And that's rhetorical sovereignty.
0: Okay. Okay. So then if you put these two ideas together, both you know, legible sovereignty, and rhetorical sovereignty, can you describe the framework that you then use to apply these concepts to analyze exhibits at the three institutions that you study in the book? Sure.
1: So, um, so it's, a, it's a combination of Lyon's work with rhetorical sovereignty and then also um, Blair Dickinson and Ott's work. This is in museum studies, well, museum slash rhetorical studies, um, and talking about rhetorical legibility, which is the understanding that whatever kind of exhibit you create or whatever kind of landmark you make, that it is going to generate multiple meetings for multiple peoples, even changing over the course of time. And so that rhetorical legibility, what makes it legible to an audience? What makes it accessible? How does it resonate with them and why? So when I'm bringing rhetorical sovereignty together with rhetorical legibility... Um, I'm wanting to do this in the service of what Malia Powell talks about in her work about rhetorical alliances um, and how the practice of communication does require participation from everybody. And especially in spaces where you want to move across cultural boundaries. And, and I know that there are cultural centers, that they exist first and foremost for their communities, and they may, that may not be their goal, and, and that's fine. But for those spaces that do want to attract audiences across cultural boundaries then we have to think long and hard about how to do that work of decolonization of museums and then also do so in a way that will move people in, in some kind of, to some kind of action. Um, it, Amy Lone Tree talks about in her book, "Decolonize Museums, that we, we need to tell those hard truths of colonialism. Absolutely, we have got to do that. At the same time, what we know from rhetoric studies is that facts do not move people automatically. Facts do not persuade by themselves. Uh, We know this from studies. It's actually a sad fact because we we want facts to move people, um, but they don't by themselves. And so this is where rhetorical choices come into play. How do we then tell these stories in a way that moves across cultural boundaries effectively, that prioritizes indigenous community needs, first and foremost, um, to prioritize that that rhetorical sovereignty, but at the same time will move people, persuade people and, and move them to some kind of action?
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so both of these ideas are very much connected to the history of representations of Indigenous peoples in museum spaces. So can you talk a little bit about the history of these representations, you know, the harm that they might have caused to audience perceptions of Native peoples, and a little bit about how these representations have been changing over the past couple of decades?
1: That's volumes upon volumes of work. Um, so yeah, in, in a tiny, tiny nutshell, necessarily reduced. Um, so I just wanna say first that all cultures have practices related to preserving objects and histories that are important to them. Um, so that's that in and of itself is nothing new. But if you look back at how the contemporary museum came to be, what we would recognize as a museum, um, you'll see that it's deeply rooted in colonialism. Um, explorers would bring back curiosities from the places and peoples they encountered, especially when we're talking about this era of European colonialism. Um, they would build collections for people back home to you know, sort of gawk at or to study as objects. Um, so, and over time, these collections and the, the public exhibitions that emerged from them developed narratives to support the conquest and destruction of non-European cultures. Uh, and these, these collections didn't only include made objects, they included bodies, um, whole or in part. Um, these collecting practices and ex- exhibitions served to objectify or, for lack of a better word, thingify, if you will, um, indigenous peoples. And so, even salvage anthropology, you know, later on, you know, centuries later, even salvage anthropology's goals of preserving objects to preserve the indigenous past automatically presume the death of indigenous peoples, the extinction. And this became part of the big story, too that indigenous peoples were inferior, or if they weren't inferior, then they aren't civilized. And if they can't be civilized or fully assimilated, then there's really no place for them and there's no future. So, museum exhibits, as a result, tended to reflect this kind of attitude and locked Indigenous peoples into the past with no present and no future. So, so that that change has come really slowly over the the past decades. Um, I would say that the early 1990s had some watershed moments with the passing of NAGPRA and the act that established the National Museum of the American Indian. NAGPRA helped open the way for repatriation of bodies and collections that rightfully belong to Indigenous communities. Um, And the National Museum of the American Indian created a physical presence on the National Mall that created a platform that had never existed on that scale. At the same time, before these efforts, and actually supporting and galvanizing those efforts, um, individual Indigenous communities and nations had already been building their own community-based cultural centers and museums as a way to support their own cultural renewal and to keep the knowledge and identities of their communities alive. So they'd already been advocating for the return
0: of their material heritage
1: and for their sovereignty in relationship to these collections for quite some time.
0: Okay, so now in terms of your methodology, again, you know, getting this all through before we start talking about the specific case studies, how did you approach your study in the book? Meaning, you know, how did you decide which institutions to examine and how did you go about forging relationships with those institutions?
1: So I'm really glad that you brought up the word relationship um, because, uh, we talk a lot in, when we talk about indigenous methodologies about building good relationships, building reciprocal relationships, doing work that gives back in some way. Even if we're not a part of the specific communities that we're working with, um, we want to do work that supports them. And so the original work came out of my dissertation, where I was interested in this concept of rhetorical sovereignty. And um, many of these, the, these three museums that I look at, the Zibu Ing Center, the um HCCM, that's the Haskell Cultural Center Museum for short, and the NMAI, they had all opened up within just a few years of each other. Um, They'd all made headlines, at least in their respective places. And um, it was part of a kind of momentum at the time. And I wanted to understand, so how does rhetorical sovereignty work on the ground? It's great in theory. Theory is wonderful. But what does it look like in practice, especially if you've got very, very different situations, different audiences, um, and different histories? uh, th- that make an impact on, on what you do and how you can say it, or how how effectively you can say it. And so the dissertation um, was looking at these three institutions, but they was doing more of uh, what we call in rhetoric studies a, a genre study, where I was looking at, for each institution, I was looking at the uh, sort of what you would call the, the introductory literature. So what kind of maps, what kind of p- brochures, what kind of pamphlets were they distributing? Um, And then uh, and doing a comparison about how they were representing themselves in this space. Um, One chapter was on the initial exhibits, all the inaugural exhibits for each of these spaces. And then the final chapter was on or the final data chapter was on um, the gift shops and how they were sort of trying to support memory being taken away, and, and what through what objects or through what means, how did they select the objects, how were those um, displayed, and, and how did they want to represent that experience of going through the exhibits and being in that space through what um, visitors could purchase. Um, so that was far too big <laughs> for a, a book and for the publishing industry, so I had to narrow it down. But over time, it also seemed to me that there was a lot of discussion going on about the overall impact and the momentum. So when these first opened, all of them, everyone was very excited for each one of them. Um, But then what happens over time? And so for me, um, and it also had to do with my own career. And as I was developing as a scholar, what I wanted to do was come back to these places. I wanted to visit them again. I wanted to continue that kind of support past the dissertation. And as it would happen, all of these institutions were reaching their 10-year anniversaries as well. About the time that I was ready myself um, to return to the, this work and to, um, to elaborate on it. Uh, and I was better prepared to do it, of course, the second time as you would be. And uh, so the, um, the HCCM opened in 2002, and then the Zipwing Center and uh, the NMAI opened in 2004. And so all of them were hitting their 10 year anniversaries between 12, 2012 and 2014. So when I was able to go revisit all of these institutions again, um, talk with the curators again, um, talk with historians or you know, basically anyone who was willing to talk with me um, <laughs> to understand uh, what had gone on since then. Like what have they learned over this time? this time frame, you know, with their 10-year their anniversaries, that's sort of a, a moment where you look back and you say, what have we done and what are we doing well and what needs to be changed or revised or updated? Um, what, what have we learned from this process? And so that's where it, it began to develop really into a longitudinal study where I could revisit these places, redocument the exhibits, um, talk to people again, see what kind of visitor studies had been done Uh, and uh, to get a better understanding of, through the arc of time, how rhetorical approach also changes. It's not just a a thing in one moment, or for a month, or for a year. This is something, if we want these stories to endure, um, what do we need to do to support that?
0: Interesting. So it sort of evolved into a long-term study. Interesting. So, one of the things that really struck me as I read the book and that I really, really enjoyed about the book were the differences that you described between the three institutions that you write about. So in terms of museum ownership, funding, rhetorical style, and audiences. So I thought now we would sort of shift and take some time to talk about each of these institutions individually so that you can explore some of these issues. So starting with this viewing center could you share some of your observations about how this institution, which again is owned and operated by the Saginaw Chippewa tribe, tackles these issues that you're digging into in the book?
1: Sure. So um, the Zibu Wing Center came out of the, the local community effort. They had been wanting a museum or a, a cultural center, and they actually they don't want it to call it a museum, so that was my slip. Um, they don't want it to be called a museum, and they purposely did not call it a museum. It's the Zibu Wing Center of Anishinaabe Culture and Lifeways. And that's a very—so even in the title, you've got a rhetorical turn there that says, this is not a museum because we don't want to associate it with a mausoleum. This is a place of living culture. This is our living place. Uh, and so when you go into the the main exhibit, it's uh, Diba Jimuyung. It's telling our story. And so the permanent exhibit there is meant to be a place where they can center their story in the way they want it told, from their perspective, um, and through the kind of, I guess you could say, epistemological framework, right? This is who we are. These are the seven fires. These are the seven grandfather teachings. And this is the framework from which we're going to move. We're not going to do this from um, archeological period to archeological period. We're not going to even use that language necessarily unless it's necessary to describe what we're doing. We're doing this through our language in the way that we want to. Um, And so they they had wanted that. Uh, NAGPRA actually helped galvanize that effort there and move that forward in the sense that there were things coming home and they needed a place for that too. So um, so that created the the extra impetus, I guess, um, to, to build the Zippewing Center. So this is a very community-centered place. It is built first and foremost um, for the community. So Bonnie Ekdahl, she was the initial director when I first talked to her. She she wanted to emphasize that. This is about the community. It's first and foremost for the community. It's for maintaining our knowledge of ourselves and for educating um, our young ones as they grow so that we have a, a way to continue to revitalize and grow Um our, our own culture and our, uh, our understanding of our lives here. Um, but it's not only for the community, it's also meant to reach across. So again, I, I was really interested in sites that were wanting to also reach across cultural boundaries. And so they also wanted to reach out to, you know, central Michigan, um, University. They wanted to reach out to the community of Mount Pleasant, which overlaps on the Isabella Reservation. Um, they wanted to reach even further into um, you know the state of Michigan. They wanted to be an example of what it looks like when a community takes control of its own narrative and does really good work that way. Well, um, in some in some really interesting ways, to be honest, uh, because they, of course, they wanted it to be a place. Um, there would be a community center, and of course, you, you hold classes. Um, they hold community exhibits there, so you have the permanent exhibit, and you have a changing exhibit space. Um, from there, they have been doing more repatriation efforts, and so some part of the repatriation efforts are centered there. Um, so, when ancestors come home, um, the Zebuing Center helps to play a role with that. Um, they have. Uh, purchased the Mount Pleasant Indian Boarding School or Indian Industrial Boarding School uh, or the grounds of it. And so they are figuring out what they want to do with that space. So they're sort of extending their reach and extending their understanding of their own history and regional history in order to interpret that for the broader public. Um, But a couple of other things that I thought were really interesting when when I went back and I was talking to folks um, The example in the sense that the Zimboing Center played a really pivotal role in a 2010 court ruling in favor of the Saginaw Chippewa against the state of Michigan, Isabella County, and the city of Mount Pleasant Uh, in the court case, Saginaw Chippewa, Indian Tribe of Michigan, and United States versus Granholm. In that particular case, Uh, The the borders of your reservation were in dispute and therefore land rights. And so what you have here is this statement of rhetorical sovereignty, the archives that support it suddenly being put in the service of being able to defend land sovereignty. And so, so it became a really pivotal place. They hadn't necessarily planned for that, but because it was there it was able to do that work because the Zibwing Center was there. It was able to do that work. Um, And a second really important example was uh, the role that the center played for the Human Rights Commission of Isabella County's investigation into microaggressions and racist acts against native community members there, particularly in Mount Pleasant. So the Zibwing Center uh, became a place to help facilitate those interviews and to facilitate that information gathering in a way that could make visible the problems um, in Isabella County and um, in Mount Pleasant between Indigenous and non-Indigenous community members there and, and to make that visible so that someone could actually do something about it. So if, we, you, know, if you can't do anything unless you talk about it. Uh, so the Zibwing Center, then again, this was not necessarily the planned role for the Zibwing Center, but because it was there, it could do this work. And so I, what I thought was really beautiful about what the Zibwing Center is able to do then is because it has become the center of the community, it enables the community to do other kinds of work too.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, sort of an unanticipated outcome, but also sort of growth of what the center meant for its community and even for the broader region. All right. So in contrast, um, the Haskell Cultural Center and Museum represents a much broader intertribal community that's also directly connected to the Bureau of Indian Affairs and then also the history of the Indian boarding school system. So how did these factors influence the exhibits and rhetoric that was employed at Haskell?
1: So, okay, so... Already, we have, as you already noted, this is an intertribal community. So, this is going to be ext- much different than the Zibuing Center. You don't have a kind of center that, uh, or center community that says, okay, this is our knowledge, our way of knowing that's going to drive this. So, you already have to have a kind of intertribal base or, or pan tribal understanding of, of community in order to build this. You also have the boarding school history to reckon with. Um, and so, the Really wonderful thing, again, is that the Haskell Center, or the Cultural Center and Museum was built for its students. It was meant to be uh, a place to support students in their training towards um, their own cultural preservation and support when they go back home. Um, it was also meant to be a, a kind of community center there as well um, to serve sort of, you know, living ongoing programs um, at uh, Haskell Indian Nations University. And so it was up to the students in some ways. the the students in those first museum studies classes that Bobby Rader was teaching, uh, and and Bobby Rader did a lot to help set this up. Um, It was up to the students to figure out what kind of narrative they wanted to tell. And the first narrative that they wanted to reckon with was this boarding school narrative. How do we talk about our own history of Haskell? How do we heal from this? We need to talk about those dark times. We have to talk about those hard truths. But we also want to talk about how far we've come. Because if you know much about um, Haskell Indian Nations University, it began as a boarding school, but now it is the only intertribal uh, university in the United States that actively works to support indigenous cultures and languages through its programming, and so it's done a complete and 180 in many respects. And so, how do you tell this story, and how do you help with student healing? Because many of the students who come to Haskell, um, their um, their family members. Uh, were affected by boarding schools in in really in really hard ways and heavy ways. And so how do you how do you facilitate that healing? And so that initial exhibit was meant to honor those first students, the, the Haskell babies. And If you look at the cover of the book, actually the, the top left hand corner, um, that's why I wanted that image on there is because that was sort of the beginning point. So how do you honor the sort of sacrifices that were made by those first students to get you where you are now and to talk through the entire process of, of sacrifice and um, change into something that is celebratory and something that we can do now. And so that was the, that was the impetus for the, that first exhibit there was to tell the story, to narrate the story. And so this, it was student driven um, and it was students who, um, who did the archival work, who created the exhibit um, to help tell the story, and so in that respect, um, again, this is a kind of statement of rhetorical sovereignty. This is an enactment, an enactment of rhetorical sovereignty. But because the cultural center also serves as a um, a sort of greeting point on campus when you drive on campus, it's one of the first buildings that you see, and it was meant to be an educational center also for you know for some of the grade schools or for, or, or middle schools or high schools in the Lawrence area or in the Kansas City area. Uh, that people can come visit. They wanted people, again, to cross the boundary, to come to campus, to come into this space and bear witness to this story too.
0: And then how did that change over the decade that you were studying Haskell or or checking back in with Haskell?
1: Uh, So this is where uh, the attachment to the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Bureau of Indian Education, becomes... um, kind of crucial because the budgeting and this and this is the nitty gritty too and people often think about why don't museums do this or why don't museums do that and well you have some limitations you have your collections and you have money you have funding and so what the hccm struggled with was the fact that because of the particular configuration of ties to the bureau of indian affairs and the bureau of indian education they can't fundraise on their own They cannot independently fundraise in the ways that the NMAI can, in the ways that the Wing Center can if it wanted to. Um, They can't do it. And so there was no donor funding coming in to help support this. And within the original budget, the initial initial, um, funding for a director was soft money. It wasn't hard money. And so when that soft money ran out, then you didn't have a director anymore. And if you don't have a director anymore, then what happens to this space. And so they maintained it as best they could. They used the resources that they had. They did the best they could to keep it open, um, to keep using the space. But over time um, they, it did lose some momentum. And the exhibit wasn't maintained as well as it had been for lack of money. Um, and because the, you know whatever directors they could bring in, they were only working on short-term contracts. And it, it wasn't it wasn't sustainable. And so the kind of revitalization that's happening with uh, HCCM now, and I want to emphasize there's revitalization <laughs> happening. Um, there's a turnaround here um, that's been happening uh, with the hiring of Jensita Warrington as uh, the new director. And the last couple of years, or last few years, I've seen um, some the first new exhibits and new, new archival work and a new presence on social media. So she's really working very hard, to revitalize this space. But also, the question is, what do you do with that boarding school narrative? It was really important to tell. That was the first story that had to be told. But there's more to Haskell than just the boarding school narrative. So what other stories do we want to tell? What other stories can we tell with the materials we have? What else can we highlight? And so that's sort of the standing question for the HCCM now is what other stories can be told. We want to keep the boarding school narrative. We need to keep the boarding school narrative. And when I talked to Jen Sita, she... Had, was, had hopes that in the future that there would be a new wing built onto the HCCM so that there would be a permanent space for, for the boarding school narrative so that this is not something forgotten. It does, they don't want to forget it. This needs to be remembered, but they also, so they want to have both. They want to have both the boarding school narrative, but they also want this space open for changing narratives, for new stories to be brought into, so it, it, to continue that revitalization, to continue that life.
0: Interesting. So, some very sort of real world constraints on what can be done in this particular space. All right. So. You also study these questions in relation to the National Museum of the American Indian, which, as we've mentioned, is part of the Smithsonian structure, and it's received probably the most public attention of the three institutions that you examine. So how well has this museum, which has a broader mission scope in terms of geography and history than the previous two that we discussed, how has it addressed issues related to colonialism and self-determination and representation according to the legible sovereignties framework that you posit?
1: So in many ways, you would think that the National Museum of the American Indian would have the best in terms of resources as part of the Smithsonian. Um, They have the highest profile. I would say in some ways, they've got the most difficult job because of that colonial framework that they can never really escape. It's there. Um, And in terms of the kind of funding, it's tied to government funding. And I don't know if you know the story of the Enola Gay, this is sort of the apocryphal story that circulates periodically among museum studies folks where um, there was a, a movement. Um, I want to say it was in the 90, 90s to um, to do a more in-depth sort of study of World War II, particularly of the Enola Gay as a sort of artifact um, to understand the complexities of what it meant to drop those bombs at the end of World War II. And they wanted to do a kind of multifaceted examination of it from Um, from the the U.S. government's perspective, from the perspective of the pilots and the the soldiers who were most immediately involved in the dropping of the bomb, uh, or the bombs, um, from a Japanese perspective. You know, what was it like for people in Hiroshima and for people in Nagasaki? Um, And when people outside of the... Smithsonian got wind of this, there was a firestorm of criticism. They're like, no, you're challenging the narrative. We're the good guys. Don't you dare change the story. So there were veterans associations that got upset about it. And then when the veterans associations got upset about it, the Japanese consulate heard about it and they got upset. Um, because are you saying that you don't want our perspective on this? Because you know this was devastating for us. Um <laughs> and you can see that so instead of using or being able allowed even to use that controversy as a way to generate a meaningful exhibit space. Because the funders found it problematic, they shut the whole thing down to the point where the only exhibit then that came out of all of that was a piece, I think of the fuselage of the Enola Gay or some, so some piece of the plane and one video kiosk with interviews of the pilots. that was it. So if you think about the work that the NMAI has to do with, has to do under that kind of pressure, where they, their point their whole point is to challenge the narrative of what people in the United States understand about indigenous peoples and Native Americans. But you are working under those kinds of... The constraints that you have limit, therefore, what you can do. They are trying their best to do revolutionary work with their hands tied, if that makes any sense. And I I think... I mean, I know that many people don't give it that kind of empathetic reading. They say this should have been a Holocaust museum. Um, They should have been much fiercer in their critique. And to that, I would say... We have to tell those hard truths of colonialism, yes, but if we're thinking about how facts alone do not change minds and how putting it in terms of a Holocaust, I would say the broader American public doesn't even recognize what happened as a Holocaust. So how can you build a Holocaust museum for American Indian peoples if the public says what is this and we don't get it and therefore it does not make sense to us and it's not relevant? So the NMAI has this particular challenge of trying to draw in millions of tourists every year, most of them are non-native, and try to explain this. And so their inaugural exhibits, even though they generated a lot lot of criticism, were still also revolutionary. And so I I think I say this in the conclusion of, of the book, that I don't consider those exhibits a failure per se. They didn't do everything that they wanted to do, and the curators knew it. They knew that they knew that they were struggling to figure out because how do you do something new when no one else has done it before Um, and when you don't have a community center and when it is still uh, has very strong government and colonial ties you have some limitations you have to work with and so the interesting thing about the NMAI over the course of the last decade is seeing them attempt it with those inaugural exhibits um, with our peoples our universes and our lives and then rethink that process given the criticism, given the the positive both positive and negative um, criticism that people say, yes, this is great, but can we do something else or can we do something more? Um, trying to find a sustainable model that involves close indigenous consultation, you know, how how can we do this? And so that's really an experimental space in lots of ways where they're trying to figure out how to do this kind of work and do it well, and which means they're going to trip and fall sometimes, and it's not going to be great. <laughs> um, and sometimes they're going to do things that are really really wonderful. And so I I think. For example, that the, the Nation to Nation exhibit, uh, when it first opened, was really remarkable in the way that it was trying to make sure that Indigenous perspectives were always foregrounded, that it was told um, by and for Indigenous peoples, but it's also meant to engage a non-Native public or publics, and also explain to them why this is also their story. It's nation to nation. This is about you too. This is part of your American history too. Uh, so, yeah,
0: go ahead. I was going to say, I want to dig a little deeper into a couple of the issues that you've mentioned, some sort of real world issues that museums and cultural centers have to deal with. And one of those is funding. So, you know, specifically, you know, if a... Let's see if you think a museum can actually effectively confront colonialism then if it's funded by the U.S. government or a state government. And you've talked a little bit about some of the special challenges that these types of institutions encounter. But could you talk a little bit more about, about how that makes a museum space different than one that is perhaps run by a community?
1: There's there's lots of questions in there. Um, so I'm I'm thinking about, you know, can... Can a space, and this, this has been resurfacing actually with the, the opening of the new exhibit, America's with the NMAI, can this museum actually ever really represent Indigenous peoples? And I would say it can in some ways and it can't in others. It cannot do the same kind of work that a tribal museum or cultural center can. It can't do the work of the Zibu Wing Center in the ways, in the focused and community centered ways that the Zibu Wing Center does. Part of that has to do with place. Part of that has to do with who's in control. Part of that has to do simply with the size, because it's really difficult. I mean, it's the National Museum of the American Indian, and it's meant to cover all of the indigenous peoples from North America to South America. How on earth do you do that? So it's, it's got the sort of impossible mission to start with, whereas the Zippo Wing Center has to focus only on its home community and maybe broader um, Anishinaabeg culture, you know, regional uh, work And so that's, it's the scope is much smaller, which means that the work is much different. And you can do that kind of detailed work. Um, and that's very, very closely tied to an individual community or uh, series of communities where the National Museum of the American Indian just can't do it. It's too big. Um, and it's too big, <laughs> and you know, how, it, how it came to be was still through the colonial structure uh, and structures of the United States government. And so these close ties prevent it from being able to do that kind of work. The question then is what kind of work can it do? Can it do any kind of work to support legible sovereignties? And I think the curators there um, would say, yes, there is still some kind of work that can be done. Um, there, there, the interview that I did um, with Gabriel Tayek uh, was, I think, particularly enlightening for me. Um, she talks about this, and I'm, I'm quoting her here when she says that if we do this right, this, you know, this work at the, Ameri- at the NMAI, if we do this right, what we can end up with is a much more informed public, and when it comes time for them to think about how to think about Indians, the idea is that if you can transmit the idea and teach people how to look at the material and make them care about it and help them realize this has impacted them, then they're going to be able to grasp other pieces of history and policy. So then, the NMAI is not meant to do that kind of close community-based work. Or it can't really do the kind of close community-based work that the Zebu Wing Center or even um, the HCCM can do. What it can do, though, is challenge the national narrative. What it can do is start talking about these things on a bigger scale. I mean, if it's if it's tied to that bigger scale, then okay, let's do work on that bigger scale. Um, and so let's talk about the larger narratives about um, Native peoples and Indigenous peoples in the Americas. Um, so right now they have Nation to Nation. That was the first one to replace the inaugural exhibits, and so that is setting up the narrative of history as nation to nation. We need to reframe this not about American Indian peoples or or communities as some kind of small entities or a mere minority population. No, 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 no. Sovereign nation to sovereign nation. So that was so that's the narrative they're trying to foreground there. Um, with the Inca Road exhibit, they are trying to re-educate people into thinking about indigenous peoples, not just in terms of the central North American plains, because that's usually the stereotype, Um, you know, the feathered war bonnet, you know, on a horse. Um, Let's challenge that. Let's think about places like South America. Let's, you know, in the kinds of, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Inca, the Andes, you know, other places, other regions, other peoples, other really successful civilizations that have created feats of engineering that dazzle us even now. So let's let's move your sense of what native or indigenous is somewhere else. Let's think about that. And so that's what Inca Road was meant to do in lots of ways. Um, and also challenge this idea of civilization, what does civilization mean? Um, and so America, I think what they're trying to do there, and I've not seen the exhibit yet. Um, so I, I'm hedging myself a little bit here. What they're trying to do there is to draw attention to all the ways in pop culture and advertising, the taken for granted imagery of the so called Indian, and draw non native visitors' attention to that to sort of challenge that and say, okay, if there's Indians everywhere, what does it mean that indigenous peoples were removed? in many ways, or attempted to be removed or consolidated, moved out of the public eye out of influence, but then images are, have been appropriated, remade for your own purposes. What does that mean? And so challenging that sort of larger narrative of what the American Indian is um, through pop culture. So this is what they're trying to do. Again, I need, <laughs> I need to see the exhibit itself um, to, to be able to feel like I, I can speak to it more directly. But that means that the kind of work that the NMAI does, in short, is not the kind of work that the Zibu Wing Center can do. It's apples and oranges in lots of ways. Um, there are particular constraints that make um, that kind of legible sovereign work at the Zibu Wing Center impossible on that on the national scale. So then, what can they do? They can try to challenge the sort of taken for granted cultural narratives, and I think that's sort of the direction that they've turned. Um, much what what Tyak was talking about when she says we need we're trying to teach people how to think about Indians to begin with. So that when they encounter these cultural centers, they say, oh, this is important. I should go visit there. So it becomes complementary work. I think that's what they're hoping for.
0: Okay, so that sort of speaks to... uh something that you wrote about, which is that, you know, the application of legible and rhetorical sovereignties in museums and cultural centers is sort of a process and it's a progression. And so you've you've talked about that a lot with the National Museum of the American Indian. Have you seen the same sorts of, of things at the Haskell Center or at the Ziby Wing Center?
1: Yes. Um, although, again, in different ways because <laughs> it's a different place um, and they have different priorities and they have different audiences to work with. Um, so, again, the zibuwing Center is, is finding itself... Um, Extending itself in ways that um, they they hadn't anticipated before, again, sort of with the the court case over land disputes or um, in supporting uh, better or for trying to facilitate better communication, better understanding between um, indigenous and non-indigenous populations there. Um, They are are continuing to expand that in part through tackling the the boarding school history um, there as well. Um, and so the Deb the, Wewin the Truth exhibit that they did was meant to draw everybody and It was meant to create partnerships, and, and I talk about it in the book, where they were able to partner with, um, the, with Central Michigan University there in Mount Pleasant to help do some of the excavation work and, and the mapping work on the school grounds. Um, They are trying to partner with other um, community organizations in Mount Pleasant to sort of make this a question of communal history and communal memory. This isn't just something that was relevant to the Saginaw Chippewa. This is something that's relevant to the entire region. This is part of the history, too, that everybody needs to reckon with. And so they make this an open invitation. And so the the day, the memorial day that they um, and the memorial ceremony that they do every year is meant to be a wider community invitation. It's meant for everyone to attend. Um, and so they're going to. They, I, I get the sense that they're going to continue doing that kind of work. That they they want to create a, a wider community and regional presence that educates everybody. Um, with Haskell, what they're doing at the HCM again is is seeking ways to tell more stories. So we have the boarding school story. We need to keep that boarding school story. But how do we celebrate our our present too? What can we do right now? Even you know in the face of budget cuts. Even in the face of, you know, getting tied up with funding in ways that couldn't have been anticipated necessarily. Um, what kinds of stories can we tell now that are relevant to our students that continues that healing process? If it's meant to be a place of healing and telling the boarding school story as part of that healing, what else can we do to facilitate that healing? And so I think that um, that Warrington is, the agency of Warrington is, is working in ways to extend the kind of stories that people know about um, to revitalize that space and keep it going um, to bring uh, outsiders in um, to help facilitate again that sort of broader community understanding. Um, so, uh, so, so yeah, I, I would say that that's that sort of expansion, um, but also the continued work to make sure that the work that they do within the space first serves the community and keeps the community um, supported. That happens first, and, and then and then moving outward. And continuing that outward motion.
0: Are there any other conclusions that you can make about indigenous museums and exhibits um, with regard to legible and rhetorical sovereignties based on your studies? And how do you expect these concepts to be applied in the future?
1: So uh, I, again, as you pointed out with the conclusion, um, this is always a work in progress. It's, it's a moving target. There's, there's never going to be a point at which we can all say, ha ha, we have it figured out. We know exactly what to do. We have this really great checklist that we'll distribute to all tribal museums or all museums having anything to do with indigenous peoples. And this is what you have to do to get it right. Unfortunately, that's never going to be the case. Um, I think we can refine practice. Um, I think we can share stories. I think we can build relationships between institutions in order to help facilitate that kind of good work. Um, but I think what, at least for me, what I learned coming out of this um, and c- coming out of the study and, and and thinking about it is for the future, we have to make sure that we're always still paying attention. There's never going to be a real resting place. That we're going to have to stay attuned um, to what our audiences need. Um, and that can change both from outside influences, you know, outside political situations, um, outside developments. Um or, or conflicts, um, but also, you know, what's going on within our communities, what do our communities need? Um, is there a shift? So what happens if you've got a fully educated, um, you know, Indigenous community that's very secure in its identity? Where do you go from there then? Of course, you want to keep that, keep that going, but then what else do they need? What else do they want? What is their vision for the future? Um, and so this is, it's a process of, of ongoing motion, if you will, and constant reattunement to what your audiences need. Um, to what resources you have, um, and to what, how the circumstances change. And so it's, it, there's never a resting place. It's, it's going to keep changing, which means the, what legible sovereignties will look like will also keep changing. All
0: right. So I'm curious if you're going to continue to revisit these museums as time goes on. And, and also, what other projects are you considering for the future?
1: Um, so to answer the first one, I, I would like to. I would, I would very much like to. Um, I was able, um, for example, with um, th- with the Zibouing Center. Um, even though I technically finished up going, you know, doing um, the exhibit reviews and or, or going through the exhibit documentation and doing interviews and everything, I was able to go back to help out with the Walking with Our Sisters um, installation and memorial when it visited the Zibouing Center. I think that was the only place in the United States where it actually crossed the Canadian border and, and came came there so i was able to to go back um and i was really grateful for that opportunity A- again building relationship you know the <laughs> these places i mean they they draw you in and they should draw you in and so i want to be able to find ways to to go back to continue working there um you know to provide whatever skill set i have and, and put it at their their disposal if there's anything i can do to help or in, or any way that i can help raise awareness and in some ways um I, I want the, the book to do that, to say, look, these are beautiful places and you need to support them. And there are other beautiful places like this that need support, your support, too, that um, these are really vital, I think, in terms of supporting public discourse and supporting this, these kinds of relationship and alliance building uh, that, that we want to do. Um, so, and, and uh, yeah, actually I'm, I'm working on a small grant proposal to go see the America's exhibit at the NMAI. I want to go back. I want to go see this. Um, so like in some small ways, being able to continue the conversation and keep supporting this work. Um, what am I working on right now? Um, well, yeah, there's always a lull when you finish a big project like this. Um, but what I've started doing here, because I'm interested in doing place-based work and here in East Tennessee, and then sort of right across the border, into uh, North Carolina Um, this is um, Cherokee home territory and what I'm interested in especially since here on our campus we have a mound we have a mound and this is not a place that is necessarily well advertised on campus or is considered necessarily part of the campus uh, narrative of itself and so that's what first got me interested. Is because I was driving past this physical space every day, and it looked out of place to me. It did not look like part of the reg- you know, the, the landscape of brick buildings and, and your institutional frame. And I thought, this is weird. And so I remember going to my desk that day. As soon as I got to my office, and I just Googled it, University of Tennessee, Mound. Bam, it came up as a Wikipedia page. I'm like, what on earth is it? Whoa, 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 why do we not discuss this? You now, as it turns out, there's a medicinal garden around it that there has been a working relationship, at least established since, I want to say about 2008, 2009, with uh, Eastern Band, um, Cherokee Indians. Um, but then there's other mounds in the Knoxville area. There's other mounds in the regional area. And then, of course, um, across the boundary in uh, into North Carolina, you have uh, the Ghidoa Mound, which is, the, that's the home mound. And the the hometown for for the Cherokee people, and and so what I'm interested then, if I've been looking at sites that we have built to commemorate Indigenous peoples or tell Indigenous stories, like museums or cultural centers, what about spaces that were Indigenous first? And how have those stories been erased strategically? How have those stories been? Remade. How have those stories been revitalized? And so, I, this is sort of like the the long the next long term project, I guess, that I'm, I'm interested in doing is thinking about the way that the mound on campus um, has been protected to a certain extent, but then only for what, for archaeological purposes, really. Um, but then, does it take on new resonance when you build an alliance with uh, the the local the, the nearest indigenous um, nation, um, the Gitwawa mound? it was repurchased. It is, again, a sacred site. Um, But then the Sequoia Hills Mount, um, which is in one of the tonier parts of the city, it's been partly destroyed. It has a running trail that goes over the top of it. Yes. Um, So in what ways, how, you know, what stories do we tell to justify these, the existence of the mounds now? And what stories are being told? And how does this end up affecting us and how we approach these spaces so i I guess and so yeah if that sounds a little bit like mush it is mush because this is the next long-term project but i'm interested in how spaces that were originally indigenous are have been reframed and what does that mean for us now in terms of public memory and how we remember these places and we treat them now
0: okay so well so we'll have to have you back to talk about that book.
1: Sure. <laughs> I'd be glad in to. the future. I'd be
0: glad to. <laughs> I will read that book. That <laughs> sounds wonderful, um, Lisa. Thank you so much for spend, for speaking with me today. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm. Lisa King's book, Legible Sovereignties: Rhetoric, Representations, and Native American Museums, is published by the Oregon State University Press.